And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Everybody. This is Harmony Birch with Rebel Girls Book Club, and I'm very excited because I have a super awesome guest today that I will be interviewing. She is the author of Against White Feminism, and her name is Rafia Zakaria. Hello! Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm an author. I'm a feminist. I am attorney. I'm all sorts of things. I take from all of those experiences to bring all of them to my writing. That's wonderful. And in addition to other books that you've published, you also seem to be pretty vocal on numerous news websites. Do you, are you experienced with journalism at all or do you write op-eds? Yeah, I write op-eds. I'm a columnist for Dawn in Pakistan, which is the largest English newspaper in Pakistan, and I'm also a columnist for The Baffler and contributing writer to CNN. So yes, I'm I'm a op-ed journalist, I guess you could say. That's wonderful. And the other books that you've published, they seem, I don't know too, too much about them, but they seem to be different topics. So I'm wondering, do you always talk about white supremacy or race within your topics, or do you have various academic interests? Well, the veil is very similar to, in some ways, to Against White Feminism, which is my latest book, in the sense that it's a personal political exploration of a topic, and it deals with the racialization of the whale and its implications, both, you know, in places like Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and then in the West, and how those contexts change the meaning of the whale. As far as uh, Upstairs Wife is concerned, that was uh, more of a memoir. And so it deals with the history of Pakistan, and it tells the history of Pakistan in the lives of, through the lives of Pakistani women. So, so yeah, those are my previous books. That's wonderful. So the only book I've read thus far is your latest, Against White Feminism, and I loved it. It was fantastic. And it seemed very timely. It talked about COVID and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests. And so I was wondering when you got the idea to write this book and if there was a particular event that made it more important for the world to have this book now versus in other times? I mean, it's not necessarily a cohesive story. The long backstory to Against White Feminism is that I had been exploring this top, you know, I finished my JD and then I was doing a PhD in political philosophy. And my area was uh, comparing Sharia law or looking at how Sharia law was interpreted in U.S. courts or how it was received. And so, you know, a lot of these underlying issues of race, of 
uh, the racialization of Muslim identity were implicated in that. And then I passed my exams and I prepared my dissertation proposal, which was on this topic. And then literally on the morning that I was supposed to defend my dissertation proposal, my mother had a had a terrible accident. And due to like, you know, in Pakistan, I, I was in the US, she was in Pakistan, but then I was already a, a single mom. And then I had a sick, my own mom. Uh, and so I never could finish my PhD, but I wanted to write because of those, you know, those sort of parallel challenges and being a woman of color and not having much of a support system. So anyway, that's the long story in that I had been looking at portions of the arguments that are in this book for, you know, over a decade and, and publishing them in small parts. But quite honestly, it took an event like the you know, unfortunate police murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and then sort of the opening that emerged from that to kind of talk about issues of race in ways that hadn't been possible. I mean, just a few. So this book was, it was sold to a publisher in 2019. So it was the after the summer when George Floyd was murdered. But yeah, it was before COVID. And I, I really didn't, didn't expect, obviously nobody expected it. So that allowed me to even talk about white, like use the word white, because quite honestly, prior to that, I'd been kind of admonished for even, uh, you know, people would say, well, your arguments are really good, but don't say white. Don't say why, because that that's like alienating, you know. And of course, the very core of the book requires me to say right, because I'm very intentionally trying to initiate a discussion about racism within the feminist movement. I see. So this was a book that you've been playing with the ideas for and researching the ideas for for the past decade. And it was just recently that it was something that the world would allow you to write a book like this, it sounds like. Exactly. You're you're exactly right. Is that before that, it was just and even, I mean, you know, the process of writing the book, it was an arduous process. I was grateful. I am grateful for that opening uh, for what I would think is a transformational moment in the U.S. and in the world in general. And of course, it's also the emergence of a new generation. I think that Gen Z is far, far more comfortable talking about race and kind of grappling with the, the difficult topics within it. They're more accustomed to the vocabulary of these conversations. So, so all of those things kind of came together in, you know, leading to the actual publication of Against White, White Feminism. But I would say that it was definitely something I really had to fight for and that I honestly, like, until the day I got the books in my you know, in my hand, I just felt like I, it wouldn't happen, you know. So here I am now, and I'm very, very grateful. I'm hoping that people will read the book and kind of be willing to consider ideas that perhaps they haven't considered before so that we can all take advantage of this tra transformational moment. Yeah, I'm 
I think your book will really help. I know for me, it definitely introduced a lot of new vocabulary that is still kind of like sitting in my head and that I'm not entirely sure how to put together yet. But let's talk about the concept of whiteness that you use in the book, because that was something that I hadn't heard constructed the way that you constructed it before. So will you, for our listeners, give us the definition of what you're talking about when you talk about whiteness in your book? You know, the book, the very first sentences in the book talk about how you don't have to be white to be a white feminist. You can be white and be a a feminist, and that doesn't make you a white feminist. Because I mean, you know, very pointedly and particularly, a white feminist for me is a woman, within my uh, argument, is a woman who is unwilling to recognize the role that white racial privilege has has played in the lives of, in the feminist movement and the lives of white women. For me, whiteness in this current moment is the refusal to acknowledge complicity in systems of oppression, and obviously, in particular, racial and gender oppression. I feel that it's not a racially descriptive term, then it's more a term of how you see the role of race in your life. And if you're willing to analyze and or acknowledge that role, I know that it's a provocative argument to make because for a very long time, feminism has shied away from talking about race. You know, obviously, discussions of intersectionality are, you know, that's the foundation on which my argument is constructed. But as I say, you know, a white feminist can say, be very woke and say she's an intersectional feminist and, you know, all of that, but still be a white feminist because she's not willing to cede space to women of color and feminists of color. So, so yeah, so it's a different idea of whiteness. It's not just, you know, some kind of blanket condemnation of all white women who are feminists. Indeed, like without the help of, you know, many, many white women who are not white feminists, uh, you know, it's crucial to get this book out there. I hope that this definition that I'm offering is something that can provoke more self-analysis and, you know, a more open discussion of race within the feminist movement. I haven't read a ton of academic texts on feminism. I'm not going to lie. I have some basic knowledge. Is that definition like your definition specifically, or did that come from somebody else? Like, is this a an idea that's been rolling around for a while? No, you know, I mean, I think that the particular definition of whiteness that I'm using is not is not something that has been rolling around for the simple reason that even the very project of examining structures, beliefs, lives for iterations of systemic racism is a very new is a very new thing and is extremely, as you know, under attack. I mean, this draws from critical race theory and it's essentially a reexamination of feminism and feminist history through the lens of race. And and that's very new and very contested. I mean, it was just a year before this book in 2018 that Nicole Hannah-Jones 
1619 project came out, which is under so much attack. 20 states right now are trying to pass legislation to ban critical race theory being taught in schools, which would mean obviously a banning of the teaching of a book like this in high school as well. It's coming at a time where this is an embattled area. Uh, of discussion. But yes, it definitely, it draws from ideas from Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, who first developed the idea of intersectionality. It draws from other thinkers who have similarly been studying and and presenting arguments within critical race theory. Wonderful. And for listeners, the 1619 Project is a project that New York Times sponsors that essentially, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it re-examines how we teach about slavery in schools. Is, does that sound correct? Well, what it does is is point out that American history is essentially and integrally tied with the practice of oppressing Blacks uh, by enslaving them. And it suggests a different starting point for American history, 1619, when the first enslaved people were brought to the United States, instead of, you know, the current sort of position of when Christopher Columbus showed up with his ships. So it's suggesting a very different point of origin uh, for the beginning of the American story. And in that different point of origin is this acknowledgement that um, the American economy, the American psyche, uh, you know, relied for hundreds of years on its ability and capacity to oppress and subjugate Black people. Um, so yeah, so it's it's a very brave project. And uh, I, I would definitely credit it with, well, credit Nicole Hannah-Jones in particular, you know, with opening that, opening that door that then allows others like me to kind of come and add some small, my own little bit about about this project of re-examination. You talked a little bit earlier about the term intersectionality and how People can use it, particularly white women can use it and say that they're intersectional, but not actually question institutions, I guess, that oppress Black and brown women. And how do you think we can bridge that disconnect? Because I feel like intersectionality, when I was first introduced to it in uh, undergrad, really was this like catch-all phrase for like, remember, there are multiple ways that we can discriminate, but there wasn't a lot of examination outside of that. But the term itself was still useful to help people who had never considered that there are multiple ways that you can be discriminated against. And so I'm wondering if there's a way for us to like actually make the concept of whiteness graspable in that same way, the concept of whiteness that you're using in this book. Well, I think that the problem, the larger problem, is that feminism at the moment is a brand rather than a movement. and. Uh, the sort of use of intersectionality within that constrained archetype of being a, br- a brand becomes just a sub-brand so that it's just, oh, I'm intersectional. But I mean, this is precisely, uh, as you said, the effort 
to take intersectionality, which means people can be oppressed in multiple ways, and now look at yourself and your complicity in all the multiple ways in which people are being oppressed. And in this particular case, I'm interested in in women and feminists. So, So it's, in a sense, applied intersectionality, right, where intersectionality emerges from a legal theory, but this book tries to take it into the realm of people's lives and how we behave and what we do at work, what we do in the kind of media we consume, how we interact with our friends, you know, what, how we think about sex, uh, all of these sorts of, I mean, so it's like this twin effort to first show how intersectionality applies in people's lives. And the other portion is to sort of salvage feminism and make it into a movement again instead of a brand and giving it a political tone and tenor which has been lost in sort of you know the capitalist I consume therefore I am type thinking that is sadly the default in the United States. You talked a little bit about that the movement of feminism turning away from movement and, and into brand, I think when you were talking about in the book, you mentioned Cosmopolitan and how that sort of took feminism and brandified it. And as a younger woman, right, who grew up, I think probably on Cosmopolitan feminism, that was just a, a new concept to me. Like when you're talking about white feminism, it always kind of seems throughout this book. And as a white woman, I think that was probably the feminism that I was exposed to. Like it kind of always seems a little bit like a brand because it's so exclusive I guess because it's out of reach for so many people well yeah I mean the 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 issue is is that you know in the 60s and 70s the feminism had a lot of radical potential and you know there was there was a definite political sort of tone and political um, substance there within the movement. But then around that same time, you know, you have, I mean, let's not forget that all of it just takes place within a patriarchy that is dominated by white men. And so, you know, once you had women that were out of their homes, working, you know, suddenly out in the public sphere, Within, within the United States and the larger white Western world, there was this idea that, okay, well, now, uh, you know, it's almost like capitalism swooped in and said, okay, so what we're going to do is help them think of liberation as the act of consumption. So now I work and I have money. And so I have money and, and I can buy these things. And therefore, I'm successful and a feminist. And on the other side of it came this this fact that, okay, the male patriarchy had a definite interest in, you know, maintaining the sexual availability of, of women to men. And so it was like that initial freedom was then, you know, sort of co-opted by capitalism, 
that said, oh, you buy these things and therefore you are a feminist and you can buy them with your own money. And then on the other side, sort of the male patriarchy, which wanted to say, okay, well, hey, if you're liberated, you know, you should just feel free to have as many sexual partners as you want and you know and so that 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 with that came cosmo and the branding of sex as the sum total of empowerment now of course there's uh you know nothing sexual liberation is a part of feminism something I support. I think all feminists should support, but it's not the sum total of feminism. But it is also true that that strain of sexual liberation as being the sum total of of feminism was elevated because it's the most marketable strain of feminism. So if you're going to be sexually liberated, liberated well, the men are happy because now that you've created a feminist argument that sort of still maintains your sexual availability to men, which is, you know, their interest is to have women available in that way. And, you know, you, on the other hand, you have all these things that are available now for you to buy to perform your empowerment in certain ways. So the critique of that strain is, exists not in the sense of, you know, the substance of it, which is something that should be fought for, but rather the the lack of sort of its inability to stand up to capitalism and the patriarchy, such that women are not constantly performing their sexual liberation with clothes or with, um, you know, this sort of centralization of sex as their as their identity and their attitude towards sex as as their as the sum total of their feminist identity. And even that, I mean, I, I don't think it's a problem for women who want to flaunt it or create that identity to do it. The problem I see is that it creates a standard where if you're not performing your sexual liberation at all times, you're somehow a lesser feminist. If if you're not flaunting your sexual identity, you're, oh, how many partners you sleep with, how much you love sex, how much, you know, if you're not doing those things you're considered a lesser feminist because it's the sex in the city model the unfortunately enduring sex in the city model which you know was also replicated in some in a more recent iteration in Lena Dunham's Girls where it's still the same it's the, still the same idea that if I'm having a lot of sex I'm a feminist um it's fine to have a lot of sex and you can definitely be a feminist and have a lot of sex. But the problem is, is that if people are not willing to perform that kind of open discussion of their intimate lives, they're not lesser feminists. And, you know, this speaks, for instance, of course, to the fact that that's what we also expect from women all around the world. So their willingness to sort of fit themselves into the sex and the city model and a very particular sort of flaunting of intimate lives, you know, then becomes a prerequisite to truly be in in the movement or, or to partake of the branding of feminism. And the sex and the city model too, just kind of talk it out for myself because there's a lot of no, big ahead, ideas. The sex and the city model too is just unobtainable for a lot of people. So like not only right. is it like one brand of this makes a feminist, but it also is like a completely unobtainable brand that in addition to like 
accumulating sexual partners also has to do with wealth and just regular consumer and a goods. certain kind of beauty right and a yeah. certain kind of like starve uh, designer decked beauty and uh so, so it's a very particular recipe and it it should be remembered that that recipe emerged and exists alongside the absolute mistreatment of black and brown women and their sexuality there's no black woman of course on sex in the city or and there's girls. a reason for or or girls and there's a reason for that the reason for that is that uh sexuality in its attractive form is always embodied in that white woman and and the white woman reaps the benefits of that as well the, not intentionally but in just the fact that that's the society societal model that we're all ho- holding up so you're exactly right and the other one is also a trap right because it's like you keep trying to be that like it's it, it wants to trap you in constantly trying to be that and live that and have that kind of a of a life when you know you might be interested in much more uh like core issues than oh you know i have a bad boyfriend that you know comes and goes out of my life and i call him mr big or whatever she cuz she called him but like you know what i'm going to say it's like a trivialization of women's political lives because it reduces their aspirations to rich boyfriends or husbands or whatever and and the procurement of all designer <laughs> designer goods i mean like it it constrains the the female universe and imagination in this in this box that will ensure that they remain sort of trapped in that hamster wheel of trying to be like that trying to find men trying to be attractive to men as part of their empowerment right you mentioned political a lot throughout your explanations and i guess throughout this book the phrase who i will credit in the show notes the personal is political kept on coming up for me and i wonder what's the relationship there because you're calling for a politicization but it also seems like you're also calling for a lot of personal narratives and shows like Sex and the City could be personal narratives. They're just not very realistic ones, I guess. So is there like a certain type of personal narrative that you're looking for? Or is it is the act of politics simply a personal one? And I'm wondering if you can break down that concept a little bit for me as you're using it in the text. Well, it's actually very simple because what I'm asking is people go through this kind of women go through this kind of personal you know self analysis and and i feel that the consequence of that will automatically be a recognition of your own choices as political choices so there isn't a choice that you make from what you choose to wear on a certain day or what you choose to retweet those are all political choices and one of the ways that you sort of extricate feminism from like a brand and into a movement is that you point out how all of those things are inflected with political meaning so it's asking for women and whoever reads it for readers to essentially look at their lives and analyze those choices i think it's very crucial i'm very much against what i call choice feminism where the idea is that oh well i'm a woman and i'm i'm a feminist so every choice i make is a feminist choice 
whether it's getting breast augmentation or is searching for a husband instead of a, a career, whatever, whatever choice I make is my choice. And it's a, I don't agree with that. I think that those choices have political implications on other women. And there are bad choices that you can make that are not feminist choices, just even though you might be a woman and a feminist. So this idea that's proliferated where, you know, women, it's been said that feminism is the sort of ratification of every choice a woman makes is absolute garbage. I mean, and it has done a lot to sort of make women numb to the political dimensions of their choices. Because if everything I'm doing is feminist, then why should I bother to uh, analyze? And it, and it's connected to this you know, the other thing that I critique, which is this very individualist, I want to get ahead and I don't care who I trample over to get there type of mentality, because that also ensures that there will never be an actual sisterhood or actual solidarity among women, because, you know, their empowerment is, oh, well, he just, you know, keep trying to be get there to where white men are and who cares what you do and who you hurt and who you trample over in in the process so so those two are tied and i think that until we sort of uh, very pointedly disavow this inane idea that every choice you make if you're a feminist every choice you make is a feminist choice we have to really just get it out of our heads so that we can truly assess the cost benefit of our choices on other women and on the potential of for solidarity. That's really interesting. And I really appreciate that you broke that down for me, because that's something I'm going to be mulling about now for coming weeks. But I guess just to talk that out again. So like if I'm buying an iPhone or whatever insert product here that I know uses unfair labor practices in another country, primarily to brown women, like that's not a feminist choice. Yeah, but it's even, it's even more than that, right? Okay. It's about, for instance, the fact that, and, and this is a, a very particular trap, okay, is that say in the workplace, you're a white woman, and you're making the choice, say, for instance, about which books get reviewed in your magazine. And you know, you're looking at three or four books and three of them are by white women and one is by a black woman. So you pass on the one by the black woman, you pick one of by the white women and write about it and it's in your magazine. Now, that's a very political choice that you have made. But, you know, the, the sort of language that's used to justify choices like that is the language of, it wasn't because it was, that was a, book written by a black author that I rejected it it's it's just because this other book is simply a better book and that's what happens again and again and 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 it it continues to enable the structure of white privilege because it imagines that choice was not affected by all the societal messages that you get about the fact that the only reason Black women are even getting a chance at anything is because of this current mood for diversity and wokeness, etc. So it's that. It's this attitude where white women pretend that their choices to elevate other white women are somehow not racially inflected. And I'm not saying this is easy. 
it's a complicated process. And I you know, my hope, of course, is that this book will initiate enough discussion. I mean, I'm not purporting to say that I have it all correct and here this is the way, but I am hoping that there's enough there in what I'm asking white women to do that it will begin a conversation that sort of feminism has avoided for a very long time. Thank you for that. That is very interesting. And I'm just going to leave that there because I I need to think about it more. But I want to ask you a little bit about our adoption of toxic masculinity, which you also kind of alluded to when we were talking about Cosmopolitan, because this particularly stood out to me in your book, because I was so young when this was going on. But you were talking about the war in Afghanistan and how it led to this idea that women are, are, white women in particular, can be just as violent, I guess, as white men. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, this idea of like this recent trend, I guess, of adopting violence. The moment you asked an American feminist in the hawkish post 9-11 uh, kind of revenge-seeking moment that 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 was, the second that they signed off to this idea that there can be a a top-down feminism that we deliver to other countries through bombs. Women and feminism and empowerment became very entangled with the war project, essentially. And it created the white woman as a heroine of sorts who, you know, was swooping into these places. Never mind that those places were being bombed by the U.S. but it was like this mark of bravery that oh you know you're out there reporting in these circumstances and so the real heroine the kind of gender tension in that was that it was these white women trying to prove themselves against white men who had been the original stalwarts of war reporting but what it left out of the conversation was the fact that you know, in elevating the white woman as, first of all, it made two demands. It required white women to kind of embrace this idea that there can be a, a feminist war or that a feminist should and could ally with the state and then participate in these things, which, I mean, in my opinion, is inherently unfeminist. I, I see feminism as a force against the state, not as an appendage of the state itself. And uh, the other part was that it created this temptation, something that ultimately almost every single white woman reporter uh, that has reported on either Afghanistan or Iraq is that they embodied this idea that they were the real feminists and they were going among these oppressed women who had like these repressed ideas of life or whatever and, and needed white people to come save them. And so these women ended up replicating that narrative over and over and over again to elevate, once again, I mean, the war, of course, was about military superiority, but there was also sort of this, these, both these wars, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the war on terror in general, is also about sort of reclaiming the role of moral superiority and selflessness that the West and white Western world wants to have for itself. So, 
you know, we're so good. We're out there building schools and we're out there like digging wells and etc. And and that's just uh, it's absolute nonsense because you know we bombed and bombed and bombed this country and now it's destroyed and kind of a husk that's left with one in three Afghans starving and being food insecure. And all we can say is like, oh my God, the women are going to wear the burqa again. And it's such a trivialization of what we have done. What is the kind of killing that has been carried out in the name of the United States and the white and Western world with this completely bogus idea that if you build a school a lot of these schools were what they call ghost schools and that the money was dispersed or not dispersed but they were never actually built but in any case in the American imagination there are these strong sort of enormous glorious buildings of knowledge dissemination and empowerment provision people just want to hold on to that you can see it in the coverage uh, of Afghanistan is uh, there's still very much the oh my god we're leaving and so the women are are going to suffer now well the women were suffering for the 20 years you were there and so this idea that that this is something that's only I mean the Taliban are no they're definitely a whole danger of toxic masculinity and misogyny you know of their own but but it doesn't mean that the the converse like with American airstrikes bombing village after village after village and killing thousands of people is somehow feminist. Uh, you said an interesting an interesting concept that I wanted to question you about a little bit earlier in in that explanation about you believing that feminism is inherently against the state. Is that against the state? in the globalized, mostly colonized world that we see now? Or like, is there a world in which there, could there be a world in which there is a state that is built on feminist values? Or is it like always inherently against the state? I guess I'm just looking for clarification. Well, I envision it as uh, a force that's a check on state power in all its many forms. So, so no, I don't see... I don't think feminism is something that should ever become, I mean, feminist ideas can become part of, of governance and administration. And I think that that is definitely a goal of the feminist movement would be that ideas about women's empowerment and equality become state policy and are carry out the redistributive and Uh, representative agendas that women that are important to women but no in this form where you kind of become an ally of the state to bomb another country uh no I think that that's inherently unfeminist it's inherently against the idea that everybody deserves a just and equal world to live in and you know and that militarism is in a very inherent way the opposite of the kind of respect for human dignity that feminists should stand for. I guess for further clarification so it sounds kind of like you're saying that feminism should inherently always question the state and authority and what we're doing kind of like what you were talking about with politicization and the personal narratives I guess is that accurate yeah I mean, okay. that, that, that's right. <laughs> okay, wonderful. I have a few other questions that I want to get to before Zoom takes us out. So we were talking a little bit about 
the U.S.'s wrongdoings in terms of going into other countries. And a part of that is the way that we, I guess not just the U.S., but like the white Western world in general, has weaponized the way other countries, quote, treat their women, I guess. And when we talk about things like honor killings, we're doing that in a way that is decontextualized. And so you talk a little bit about how toxicity exists in both Western and Eastern cultures, that because the Western focuses on individual societies, we have ego versus collectivist societies having honor. And I was wondering if for listeners, you could explain that concept a little bit more and how it benefits white women. Yeah, well, some of it, I think people are just going to have to buy the book and actually (laughs) just read it, Um, you know. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that the gist of it is just simply that these are the core form of violence is male violence on women you know, and and these sorts of varied categorizations make it difficult, if not impossible, for, for women to unify against that. Okay, well, thank you. I guess because we were talking a little bit before about a more collectivist feminism and what that would look like through personal narratives, I just, I like that idea. And maybe that could help listeners take something away from this on like what what our homework is going to be after listening to this podcast, right? Like, how are we going to think about our personal narratives and self-analyze and make a more collectivist society? Do you have any kind of succinct homework that you would like to leave listeners with along those veins? Well, I would hope, first of all, that they would take some time to read the book. But then I hope that they also take time to have a look at their lives and the lives of others. I'm not saying that all white women are actively maliciously into oppressing other women. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there are larger systems that all try to co-opt women, particularly feminists, into their own systems of oppression. And unless we are extremely, unless we are extremely self-conscious and self analytical about our lives and the structures that we participate in, we cannot really, we can't move forward. We can't sort of disentangle feminism from capitalism. We can't disentangle feminism from militarism. All of these things have to be done because I think that there's tremendous potential in feminist solidarity. The book in that sense is like a listing of all the things that are keeping us from achieving that solidarity. Now, I'm not an idealist. I don't think all of these things can be eliminated. But I do think that if you read this book, you are, you will be transformed in that way, because you at least will look at those structures and your own life differently then then you have and you know the one thing one direct way to sort of uh, diffuse complicity and oppression is to realize that how you might be complicit in oppression that realization alone um you know redirects the course of the conversation and the and the course of the movement And um, so, I mean, so this is a first step. And I think that there's a lot in this book that, you know, 
people could women could discuss with their friends with their I mean you know just just the women in their lives this is very much applied feminism in that you know you can talk to your mother about it you can talk to your neighbor about it and it will hopefully will lead to more honest conversations because what I'm trying to do is like just chip off the sort of fakery you know of like oh we don't talk about race because we're going to be all you know into solidarity or we don't question that sex is the sum total of empowerment because you know I I like sex in the city as a show and so I'm gonna go with it like I mean you know what I'm trying to say like I just think that I'm trying to take that fake sort of veneer off and say this is what we do this is why I think we do it and this is why I think we should perhaps do it differently Thank you. And thank you for writing this book. It's fantastic. Um, just as a personal endorsement, I'm going to try to use what I've read in Rafia's book uh, in like personal practice and library practice. And there's a lot that listeners can definitely take from it. So please go and buy it. And where can they find your book? Anywhere. They can find it on bookshop.org, their indie bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere that books are sold. Wonderful. And where can listeners keep up with you and your work? They can follow my Twitter, which is just my first and last name. So at Rafia Zakaria, R-A-F-I-A-Z-A-K-A-R-I-A. And on Instagram, it's Rafia Zakaria Feminist. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Is there anything else that you want to say before we head out? Buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) I need women to buy the book. (laughs) It is a great book. Can confirm. All right. Well, thank you. That's all, folks. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, Rebel Girls Book. Dot club and clicking read along with the show you can follow us at rgbc pod on instagram at rebel girls book club on facebook at rebel girls book one on twitter and you can email us at rebel girls book club at gmail.com our theme song is called pretty boys make me feel ugly and it's by the gays See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.